Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Welcome back to Banking Weekly. I'm Megan Murphy, switching roles this week with Patrick Jenkins, who's here in the studio with our other banking correspondent, Charlene Goff. This week, while Greece is still dominating the news, it looks like there's been a proposal by French banks to agree some sort of Greek debt rollover, but the details remain hazy, and it's yet to be seen the crucial question of whether it will trigger a default. So we're going to be taking a look at that. We also reported today that Lloyds Banking Group has doubled the exposure to risky loans of any of its rivals. Is that a ticking time bomb for the bank, and what could it mean for the UK government's stake? And finally, so much for Lehman Sisters. Proposed quotas for female directors on bank boards seems to have already been dropped, and we'll be looking at that and how that would shift the board representation of women in the financial sector. But let's start first in Greece, which continues to dominate the news. I'm hopefully headed out to Greece tomorrow morning to do some on-the-ground reporting on this. But right this morning, we've had the story out of this meeting in Rome that French banks have put forward a proposal to roll over Greek debt. Patrick, can you walk us through? It sounds a little bit like the Brady plan to bail out Latin America. Uh, It is basically very similar. Um, So uh, as you said, the details do remain hazy at the moment. Uh, and what we know about so far is the some of the details of the French proposal that's gone to this meeting in Rome. Um, that said, it's the French and the Germans between them that basically control this process. So uh, if the Germans are on side with it, then it's going to happen in something like its current form, I suspect. And from what I can work out, the Germans, or at least uh, some of the key German banks, are on side with it. Um, I think the question that I haven't yet uh, found an answer to is whether the Landesbanks, these are the part state-owned banks in Germany that are some of the biggest holders of the Greek sovereign debt, to what extent they are on side. They're more weakly capitalized than the commercial German banks and therefore more at risk if uh, there there are problems uh, in Greece. Um, So uh, we need to see how that pans out. But basically, it feels as if the French plan uh, is likely to form the basis of an an agreement on on rollover. And just to kind of summarize what we know of that, we don't know the full details at all. But um, what seems to be the case is that the um, a portion of something like a half of um, the outstanding sovereign uh, Greek sovereign debt uh, the proposal is that that be rolled over for 30 years. Um, now, this is one point of discussion, obviously, between the French and German banks and, and anybody else involved in these uh, meetings at the moment, whether that 30 years is is too long. It is uh, in line with the, as you said, the uh, the Brady Bond um, uh, Argentina restructuring. Um, so uh, a lot of bankers feel it's um, a, a plausible way to go. Um what that's the kind of main uh, aspect of this uh, of this restructuring plan that the French banks have put together. What uh, is uncertain is is you know how the rest of it would work. What happens to the other fifty percent? Um, I think certainly a portion of it, maybe about thirty percent, doesn't um, 
mature for the next three years. So maybe there's a kind of uh, deferring that problem beyond that three years. Uh, and then a, a kind of uh, a balance of about 20% where there may be some more sophisticated restructuring to, to involve uh, greater uh, collateral, higher, um, basically more, more sound backing for, for rolling over in some form. I mean, it seems like there's really two big questions that surround this. The first is that it does look like this plan has been put forward. There definitely seems to be buy-in for some type of rollover um, moving forward. It, it, in other words, it seems like we are going to get some type of solution hammered out without a default. But that then begs a question of, you know, this has been quite tricky. The rating agencies have been quite firm on saying that even a totally voluntary rollover if it were to be seen to damaging creditors' interests in any way, would still constitute, you know, pressure on creditors and therefore mm. some type of default. I mean, wh- how do you think that that, which is really um, the sort of second stage of this, is going to be resolved? I haven't had anyone come up to me yet with sort of how they're going to finesse this all. Have you? No, um, and I think that's because they're all still working on it frantically uh, behind the scenes. I mean, we know that European authorities are talking to the ratings agencies now to try and ensure that this whole thing is structured in a way that doesn't um, technically lead to a default uh, rating by the ratings agencies. Um, uh, From the creditors' point of view, the big creditors, clearly it's in their self-interest to make sure that they, you know, uh, come up with some kind of solution. Yes, they're being leaned on um, by the Eurozone governments, but equally, um, you know, they're happy to be leaned on in a sense because they the last thing they want to see is uh, a formal default, not, not only because it would uh, trigger immediate losses in their holdings, but also it would lead to huge contagion chaos, um, both for other uh, banks in the Eurozone and beyond, um, but also the second contagion effect the, the, the eurozone periphery uh, impact on on nations like Ireland, Portugal, and so on, which um, obviously has a far more uh, scary uh, threat behind it. Yeah, Charlene, and I think it's also important to sort of see this in the broader political context of what's going on. I mean, this is a massive week for Greece. We've got a vote on the austerity measures that the government is trying to push through later in the week we've got a three-day or two two or three-day national strike due to kick off tomorrow I mean it just seems there's so much sort of chaos around this you know as they're trying to thrash out this you know we don't even know whether the country is going to push through the austerity mm. measures yet and mm. approve that so I mean I guess if you can get out there tomorrow I mean that could cause some disruption to your plans which is um, kind of ironic but you know it there's there's so much that it's still just Completely sort of. Mm. It's interesting. It's almost like the most clarity we have is on this now. You know, the proposal seems to be coming forward. It seems like negotiations, and maybe there'll be another line that comes out of Rome. But as Charlene says, I mean, it's difficult to sort of separate this from the wider Mm. issue that is what is the next stage for Greece? And as someone just brought up in a meeting with us, you know, how do we prevent this from ever happening again? Which is, of course, you know, the bigger question, too. Well, let's move on, though, to Lloyd's, which we had a great story today in the paper about Lloyd's exposure to the riskiest kind of mortgages um, that showed that it actually has doubled the exposure of any of its UK rivals. How did this uh, happen? Because we saw, um, you know, how how has this data been compiled and why is it only coming out now? Well, I think we had um, the basic information before, but what was kind of powerful... um, 
in the state we had on Friday, actually, from the Bank of England, was that it compared the exposure of the top six British lenders um, to the riskiest kind of mortgages. And these are basically mortgages that um, are worth 90% or more of the property that they're secured against. And Lloyd's actually had over 25% of its entire mortgage book, which is worth about £350 billion, is exposed to this small you know, bracket of very risky loans. And that was more than double RBS, more than double Santander, and you know, I think about four times as much as HSBC um, and Barclays. So Lloyd's is way out there on the scale of these high loan-to-value loans, which uh, could be a, a potential time bomb for the bank um, if the economy gets worse. So where are they writing more? There uh, were large LTV. Yeah, I mean, analysts think that about three quarters of this comes from Halifax. Now, as we know, Halifax was one of the most aggressive lenders in the boom, both on individual mortgages and crucially on commercial property. And a huge amount of this is the commercial property exposure that it has. So yes, it was writing higher loan to values. I mean, it was doing a lot of first time buyer stuff at sort of 95, 100%, kind of Northern Rockstar, not quite as aggressive, but you know, it was out there and very high loan to value commercial stuff. Um, that, coupled with the fact that a lot of the Halifax lending is in the north of England, you know, areas, regions of the country that have experienced some of the sharpest price falls, which means they've sort of had the double whammy of um, seeing that equity eroded. And this isn't, I mean, this isn't necessarily a huge problem yet. You know, if borrowers continue to pay their mortgages, it doesn't really matter what your loan to value is. It's just what, if these borrowers get into difficulties... And the danger for Lloyd's is that ratings agencies, regulators really do see a considerable extra risk of borrowers defaulting if they have high loan to value. And and that's for a couple of reasons. Firstly, they are financially stretched um, to begin with, sort of needing to have that high loan to value, not having the equity to put down, um, which means that their other areas in, in their income may be stretched. And also, if they they would sort of have less of an incentive to pay their mortgage because they don't have the equity there to lose. So there are a number of reasons where this can become a problem. I think analysts are concerned, really, that it just shows that the quality of Lloyd's mortgage book is a lot riskier than other lenders. The other danger for Lloyd's is on funding, because obviously riskier mortgages are going to be more expensive to fund. The bank is already having to pay back its special liquidity scheme, a government-backed form of funding that's been a lot cheaper than it can access elsewhere. So this is another pressure on costs, um, which can weigh on the bank, you know, as it as it tries to boost returns. And and that will be a big challenge for the new chief executive, who will unveil his uh, long-awaited strategic review later this week on Thursday. Yeah, on Thursday, are we going to get? I mean, how is this impacting? What is the government feeling about its stake in Lloyd's right now? And are we going to get any head movement from him on sort of the long-term prognosis of that? The strategy will all be very sort of focused on the long term. I mean, the shares at the moment are about a third below when Antonio Tassaria joined four months ago. So, so far, it's been a sort of steady trickle of quite negative news from him. You know, we had, of course, a huge write-down on PPI. Um, We had sort of a, a more caution around Ireland, around costs. Um, and I think we're not expecting anything too radical, but we are hoping that we will get 
a strong sense of where Lloyd's, how Lloyd's will be rebuilt, basically. And this isn't going to be any quick fix. We think it's going to take three years at least, five years maybe. But we should get a sort of sense of direction on, you know, when they'll be back in sustainable profits, how he will cut costs. We're expecting sort of cost savings of about a billion pounds to be revealed on, on Thursday. So, you know, it just will be a very clear sense of direction of how the bank will develop from now and how it can get in a position where we can see that the government could start selling down its 40% stake. At the moment, that looks a long way off sort of going well into into 2012. Um, but we should at least get a bit more of a sense of, you know, when that could we could start to think about that. Thanks very much for that. Now that's time for our regular report from the U.S. in stateside. This week, the U.S. banking update comes from Helen Thomas, our U.S. M&A correspondent. Over to you, Helen. Thanks, Megan. This week in the U.S., J.P. Morgan paid $154 million to resolve a civil fraud case. Bank M&A made a comeback. And the resolution of another regulatory situation is bringing another bank to the market. First up, J.P. Morgan paid $154 million to resolve a civil fraud case brought by the SEC. The regulator had alleged that the bank failed to tell investors that a hedge fund had helped choose mortgages for a CDO. The case raised a similar issue to that which Goldman Sachs grappled with last year. Bank M&A returned to the market with Pittsburgh-based PNC agreeing to buy the U.S. Retail Bank of Royal Bank of Canada. The deal came hot on the heels of Capital One's agreement to pay $9 billion for the U.S. online business of Dutch financial group ING. And finally, the resolution of one more regulatory situation is bringing another bank to the market. Tennessee-based Morgan Keegan, which is owned by Regions Financial, agreed to pay $210 million to resolve civil charges that it defrauded investors in bond funds. With that situation over, Regions appointed Goldman Sachs to run a sale process for the bank, which could fetch up to $1.5 billion. That's all from the U.S. this week. Back to you, Megan. Thanks, Helen. Moving to our final topic today, Brussels has performed some radical reforms insisting that a third of European bank boards should be composed of women. Um, the proposal was first mooted last week, but then quickly seemed to be axed uh, after some further discussion at the commission level. This would be a sort of major, major change for bank boards. I mean, Charlene, we've done some preliminary looking across UK and Europe to try and get these numbers, and it's quite low. Do you see this as something that is it something that you hear, you know, talked about in this city? It's not something that I've felt much pressure on from regulators here. It would be a massive step change. Yeah. Actually, I'm not sure they could find enough qualified female candidates right now. Yeah. I mean, to- I think I think that's the reason why this rather idealistic looking plan was so quickly dropped. I mean, it just seems completely impractical to get, you know, a third of the bank boards being female as great as I think that that would be at the moment the representation particularly on financial services companies is tiny I think you know less than three percent um in general of board members of the 500 biggest sort of listed EU companies are women you know one in 10 are chief executives I think on banks it's much smaller than that and you know when you look across you know whenever you go to an AGM of one of the British banks and there's like maybe one or or two females there um and the vast majority are you know middle-aged um white males yeah I mean I remember looking into this a little bit a while ago and the interesting thing too is the number of the women that are on bank boards such as Alison Carnwath at Barclays 
you know, they have such cross membership because they are such in demand from companies who are obviously keen to improve the diversity of their boards. I guess what's interesting is, you know, this has always been the debate over sort of Lehman Brothers. Had it been Lehman Sisters, would it have suffered as catastrophic a uh, collapse? I mean, I, I don't know. There had never been any research showing specifically right. that, in fact, there's been research showing the opposite, that having a higher number of women actually can negatively impact profits. Because I remember reporting on that controversial study about two years ago. But um, it's definitely a problem. It's not one that I think we know how to solve and how to up the participation of women. And I honestly, in this case, can't. I don't really fault the banks because I think they are trying to diversify. It's just an issue of finding candidates that mm. have the space and the expertise, especially now when you know the legal responsibilities put on non-execs can be so huge and so risky um, that a lot fewer people actually are taking on these roles. I know. I mean, I think the debate around it, though, is is a really interesting point. Like you say, you know, they seem to be saying that getting the women on the board would avoid this sort of group mentality, this sort of testosterone-driven decisions that we saw that were probably there. I mean, you know, RBS with Fred Goodwin and very male-dominated board there. I'm sure maybe that had something to do with it. But it's um, it's an interesting debate. I mean, I think the that study that you talked about, that, you know, women would hold back profits, that's kind of what they want. I mean, they don't think there would be that sort of aggressive drive to grow and, you know, really achieve these targets and be very competitive. I mean, whether that's true or not, I mean, I think it sounds very... Um, you know, very, very sort of bit of a crude stereotype, and I'm sure you yeah. get a lot of women, particularly in these areas, that are just as aggressive and competitive as as men. But I, I think it would be a, a really interesting point to sort of delve into a bit more. And yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it's a, it's one, definitely one to watch. As we said, I mean, a thirty percent figure is you know, way out there right now yeah. in terms I mean, of... The banks uh, have nothing like that. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, I would have thought it was less than 5%, yeah. 10 yeah. at the most, if that... Well, that's all we have time for today. All that's left to do is to thank Charlene and Patrick in the studio and to Helen in New York and to thank you again for listening. Banking Weekly is produced by Rob Minto. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.